following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. What a joy it is to be with you this morning. If you'll take your Bible in hand and turn to 1 John in chapter 2. 1 John in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11 this morning. 1 John chapter 2 verses 7 through 11. I have to say briefly, I just want to thank you all for allowing me this opportunity to come before you to open up God's Word, to see the depths of God's Word together. Um, it's a great joy for me every opportunity that I have to proclaim God's Word and to be able to study as I do and then come before you and share what the Lord has done and worked in my heart as I study and, and hopefully bring some of that out for you as well. And so... It's with great joy then that we hear from our living God in 1 John in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. I'll read the text first and then we'll, we'll be able to get into it. Friends, hear from your living God. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we come back together here in First John, and it's been a little while. Our brother Justin's been leading us through Matthew, and we've seen great depths of Matthew as we've studied there. And now as we come several weeks later back to First John, I want to just take a few moments to dive back in to get our minds a little bit refreshed to help us be able to look forward to what we'll be going into over the next six weeks. Tentatively, as we work systematically verse by verse through First uh, John over the next six weeks, we may make it to chapter three. And so um, I look forward to that. I pray that you look forward to it. I pray that this will be a blessing for you as it is for me. But as always, this will all be according to God's will and God's word. And so let us dive in a little bit to refresh our minds as we get into 1 John chapter 2, verses 7-11. through 11. So if you recall, which some of you are relatively new, and so we're not here when we did our first sections of 1 John. 
The Apostle John is the author of this letter. There's been many that have argued against it, but church history and common belief and all signs point to it being the Apostle John. And he was writing it probably to churches in the area of Ephesus where he was living before his exile and even after his exile. The churches there seem to be facing a, a variety of battles involving an early form of Gnosticism that would argue somebody had to have a, a secret knowledge or a, a deeper spiritual experience. They would argue that to be truly saved would be to have this special experience. Their main desire was to separate from the body because the material worlds and everything in it was evil. But the spiritual would be a, a better place. That's a, that's a good thing. This led many of the Gnostics on a path of asceticism, attempting in a sense to remove all signs of pleasure, all signs of enjoyment, no participating in any form of, of real self-indulgence. And this means no chocolate cake after dinner. This means cutting yourself off from all the, the many joys that the Lord allows us to enjoy. This would be participating in self-discipline to minimize the material world. We see this continuing on in our world today. We talked about this briefly early on in our study of 1 John. We see this happening still in Roman Catholicism. As monks that completely deprive themselves of certain items or even the ability to speak for their lives. A sense in which they deprive themselves of this ascetic life. We see this happening in other religious cults. Buddhism, Hinduism. There's many that deprive themselves for the sake of believing they were attaining some higher spiritual realm. This also led, though, to a heretical teaching known as docetism. Docetism was the belief that Christ's body was not real. It was more of a phantasm or a spirit. Anything that you thought you saw or you thought you touched or you thought you heard was not real. Christ couldn't have come to the earth because he was holy and he was perfect and he was spirit and he couldn't be associated with this material world. There was no way in the minds of the docetists that the perfect immortal God could enter into the imperfect mortal world and be able to maintain his deity. And this is where John enters into the letter. John begins by affirming that Christ was indeed real and alive. He was touched and he was seen and he was heard. Reading from 1 John chapter 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, speaking of Jesus himself. And this is what he proclaims. This is what he professes. It is through Jesus that one might then have fellowship with God and with one another. He says down in verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we pro proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
this opening that Jesus was physically upon this earth, that he is the basis and the only way of salvation, and that in him our joy may be complete. This was the very foundation of John's gospel, John's message, John's writing, was that Jesus was real. That was what he desired people to know, is that Jesus lived. Don't worry about what these docetists say. Don't worry about what these Gnostics say. Don't worry about the false teaching over here or over there. Jesus lived and he gave commands, obey them. He continues on in his letter to begin a series of comparisons or tests wherein he utilizes contrasting language to separate those that are in the church from those that are in the world. The holy from the unholy, the good from the wicked, the saved from the unsaved. As the church looked out on false teaching and those that were trying to lead them astray, John calls them back to the basics. He calls them to test the false teaching and to test themselves, not as a way of discouragement, but as a way of encouragement and assurance that they are in the faith. Friends, it's so easy for us as we are bombarded by various false teaching to get led astray. It's so easy. We see it happening all throughout the world. Even people who are professing to be Christians being led astray by various doctrines, various false teachings, affirming various things. You can only imagine as we see the rampant growth of charismatic movements of people arguing that they can have some deeper experience, that they can have Jesus standing next to them while they brush their teeth in the morning talking to them. Think about the early church. Think about what they're experiencing. You have these people coming in and saying, I know something you don't know. You hear the, the person say that Jesus talks directly to me. I physically can see him. And you think to yourself, well, I want that. I desire that. That sounds good. And so John then calls the believers in the church of Ephesus Similar as he calls us today to test these things. He says, look upon all the things that these people are professing and ask the question, does it line up? Does it line up? And part of what we'll see today is, does it line up in word and in action? First, as he goes through these series of tests, he calls them to look at light and darkness. He says, walk in the light as God is in the light. He desires that they walk in the ways of God and the result being that they have fellowship with God. You cannot have fellowship with God if you are not in the light because he is in the light. The darkness doesn't come into the light. The light comes into the darkness, but we don't have fellowship if we are in darkness. Secondly, he calls them to confess sin. He says, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar and you make God a liar. It means you are not saved. However, on the contrasting side or the converse side, he says, if you confess sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Third, he calls them to keep the commandments. If someone does not desire to follow God, to submit under the rule of Christ, 
then John says the truth, is, the truth is not in him. And just earlier we saw that God is light and he is truth. If you are not willing to abide in him, if you are not willing to walk in the same way in which he walked, Christ our Savior, then you cannot be in fellowship with God. You cannot submit to Him and you are not saved. Does this mean perfection? To walk as Christ walked? Well, by no means. However, John is pointing and saying our trajectory as Christians should be that of those who desire to put sin to death and desire that we may not sin. That should be the desire of every believer. If that is not your desire here today, you need to ask the question, where do I stand with God? Is your desire to see sin put to death? Or is your desire to live in sin, but outwardly profess to be a believer? Because those two do not line up. However, as believers, the joyous hope that we have is found here in chapter 2. He says, if You do sin, or when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so through this whirlwind tour through the first chapter and into the second, now comes our text for today. In this section, John continues his contrasting language as he calls on the true believer to be known by love. John will say that if you don't have love for your brother, then you are not in the light. You are not in the truth. Remember, God is light. So if you do not love your brother, you are not in the light. You are not in God. Love is indeed a staple of the Christian life. It's the primary fruit of the spirit that's given to the believer. And so we dive into our text for today. And I would like you to Draw your attention to four points to help us in our navigation through the depths. First, in verses 7 and 8, we see the commandment. The commandment. In verse 9, we see the one who is conned. In verse 10, we see the one who is consistent. And finally, in verse 11, we'll see the comparison. And with that, let us dive into our text this morning and draw from the wells for our enrichment and for God's glory. Starting in verses 7 and 8, the commandment. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. John throughout history has been known as the apostle of love. Remember within the Gospels, John refers to him as the one that Jesus loved. We just read that right in John chapter 13. Jesus is looking down from the cross. And as he says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. John, speaking of himself, realizing his infinite unworthiness and the love that God in Christ had brought to him. And therefore, it almost seems perfectly fitting for him to start this section by saying, Beloved. 
He's going to detail the importance of love for the brethren. And he starts there. He says, beloved, the ones that I love, the ones that I love and care for. He refers with such tenderness and care for the church as he desires truly their best. He desires that the true church have assurance of their salvation and that those within the visible church that may not be saved know it. Remember chapter 5 and verse 13 of 1 John will get there eventually. But he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so he says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. The reality is, is that what John is about to share, what he's going to outline here, to love one another is not a new commandment, but rather an old one. This is something that they would have heard before. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, in the Old Testament, turning back to Leviticus in chapter 19, we see this. I'm going to turn back there. Leviticus chapter 19. Early on, in verse 18. The Lord says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, of your brothers, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Again, then in Deuteronomy in chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These are the two commandments that we see affirmed again by Christ, are they not? He says, love the Lord your God, love one another as yourself. So love was not a new thing. This was not some wild idea to the believers. Oh wait, we were supposed to love each other this whole time? I thought we were supposed to be angry all the time. That was not the case. They knew it. None of this was a new thing. The believer would know that they are called to love God and love one another. This should be the natural outpouring of the Christian life as we see later. This was also not new in the sense that believers had heard this from the beginning of their own salvation. This was not a a point of creation, but when they heard the gospel and were saved through the proclamation of it, the believers were not receiving something that they didn't know. They were called to love one another. They were called to gather together and to love one another. The apostles lived that out before their eyes. The believers were not receiving something they had not heard, but something that they knew to be true. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 11, he'll go on to say, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, from the very point when I proclaimed it to you, that we should love one another. Jesus reaffirmed all of these things as I mentioned earlier. He said in Matthew chapter 22, I'm going to turn briefly back there, as we look at the great commandment, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. He says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, To him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Pointing back to that Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, pointing back to Leviticus. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this is nothing new. There's no, there's no new storyline. Christ didn't pull something out that was not already there. He pointed back to the Old Testament. He said, you've already heard, you already know that you are called to love your God and you are called to love one another. But John continues and he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is in him, true in him and true in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And so we come to this point of almost already contradictory language. John says, this isn't new at all. This is old. This is from way back. This is from what you heard when you first were pro proclaimed the gospel to you, when you heard the gospel for the first time. But he says, but it is new. And so you ask the question, well, John, which one is it? Is it old or is it new? I, I, I can't decipher which one it is. Yes. The answer is always yes, isn't it? When we ask those contradictory questions. Yes, it is both. It is the old calling from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but it finds new life and new meaning in Christ. While it was not new in the sense of the calling, it was new in the depth and in the emphasis and in the extent. The depth of it, the quality, right? The man was not just to love as he loved himself. Yes, that was the second of the commands. And it was easy, right? Because I love myself really well. I'm really good at taking care of myself. And so he says, love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to eat, maybe your brother wants to eat. If you want clothing, maybe your brother wants clothing. But it went even deeper than that. He was, man was to love one another with a self-sacrificing love even unto death. John chapter 15 and verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Think about that. Self-sacrificing love. It wasn't as simple as just saying, well, I like to eat, and so I'm going to make sure that my brother eats too. It was me being willing to say, I will forsake eating for the sake of my brother eating. It wasn't as simple as saying, I want to wear clothes, and I'm sure my brother does too, so I'll get him a shirt. It was saying, I'll take off my shirt and be cold for the sake of him. It wasn't enough to say that I would do whatever it takes for them to know the Savior. It was to say, I would be willing to die for that. Be willing to put my life on the line for that. That they might come to know Christ. And so it was new in this depth. It was new in its emphasis. Christ emphasized that the whole of the law and the prophets hung upon this. Its emphasis was far greater than it had ever been practiced. He said, as we read back in Matthew chapter 22, right, as we read the great commandments, on these two commandments, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love one another as yourself, the law and the prophets rely. The emphasis is there, that everything, all the law could be summed up there. If you loved God, and if you loved one another as you were called to. And then to the extent, I'm going to turn back to Luke as we do this, Luke chapter 10, the extent he, 
of showing our love spreads beyond ourselves, but beyond to all that are in need. Luke chapter 10, reading in verse 25, we see the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Don't you love how many people would come before Christ to put him to the test? And he always answered with such brilliance and such beauty, for he was the knower of all truth. He said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who shall I love? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by a chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed him by on the other side. Imagine that, a a religious leader seeing a man there and he looked upon him and he went around him. He avoided him. You can almost imagine, it reminds you of you think of stories of the man who is begging by the gate and you could just think of, he's reaching out and the people are like sidestepping, like don't touch me, leave me alone. This priest walks upon him and he goes by by him on the other side. So a Levite When he came to the place and saw him, he too passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, somebody who would have been separated and almost enemies, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. He took off the comfort. He was probably riding his animal, and he stepped down from his animal, and he put this man on there. And brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, to the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And so we see that Christ calls upon us to have a deeper love. A love that is the main, the main point, the main emphasis, the extent of it being greater than we could ever imagine. And what more than a perfect example in Christ himself? Think about it. We were all enemies. We were all enemies with Christ. He entered into this world with enemies all around And he sacrificed of himself for them. He continues and he says, This is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. You see, the newness of this command is not fully uh, found solely in the words, but in the illustration. As we look upon our Savior as he exemplified perfectly this command. The Old Testament commanded to love one another. The display was made perfectly and plainly clear in Christ. 
John chapter 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down their life for their friends, as we read earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Talk about a truly self-sacrificing love. And what is wild is that it goes beyond Jesus and it enters into you, believer. It is a new commandment because you, being a new creation in Christ, share in the love. It's on display in the life of the believer. This is truly a test that we'll see coming in the following verses The biblical expression of love is a sign of true believers. Do you have love for one another? Upon salvation, the Holy Spirit enters into the life of the believer and produces spiritual fruit. One of those, and the primary one mentioned in Galatians, is love. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul reaffirms this in his letters. The primacy of, the, of love. Romans 5.5 5, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. There was no end to love. There was no, there was no bounds to love. true in him and in you this love because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining the command to love is on display in a very new and special way because the light right the true light jesus christ himself has entered into the world and ushered in his kingdom with christ the true light ushering his kingdom in the light is shining and is overcoming the darkness that is satan's kingdom that is satan's world this Darkness of this present evil age. The light is shining into it. And the light will overcome it. The darkness is slowly passing away. And will be fully and wholly and totally expelled in the return of the Savior Jesus Christ. When the whole world will be made new. And we look to that. And so we have a new commandment in the sense that Jesus entered the picture. We have a new commandment in the sense that he was the perfect living being, the perfect example of love. And we see that this old command to love God and to love one another took on new life. A new breath was given, not in the sense of it changing it, but just giving fresh life to it as we saw the example of our Savior. And we share in that as believers. So we continue on to our next point. The one who is conned will see that it is possible, that it is not possible for us as believers to be in Christ and not love one another. We can't have it both ways. 
Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And so here we come to these tests, right? We've said there's these comparisons, these tests that seem to happen throughout 1 John. And the test of true love for those who claim to be Christians. As we look, we'll see here that John gives us a reality check. He kind of points to us and says, Supernatural love is a good and sure indicator of your salvation. People want to know, how do I know that I'm saved? And John says, do you love your brother? That's a great example of knowing that you are saved. Remember, John is combating a wide scope of false teaching. He's looking out on the false teaching of the Gnostics and the Docetists and all these people that believed in gaining a higher knowledge, gaining a higher understanding. And he observed them and he asked the question, but what about love? It's all well and good for you to have all of that, but what about love? Remember we read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. How does their supposed deeper knowledge, the deeper knowledge of the docetists or the Gnostics or anybody else, how does that align with loving one another? John says, you want to know if you've been saved? Don't look at some secret knowledge. Don't look at some supernatural experience. Don't look for Jesus to stand next to you in the mirror while you're brushing your teeth in the morning. Look to your love for one another. Look to your love. For those that are around you. Look for your love for the lost. Your desire to see them saved. Whoever says he is in the light. Those that are claiming to be saved. Those that are in the light are the ones that would be following God. Right? Whoever says he is in the light. Remember in chapter 1 and verse 5 of 1 John. He said God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So those that say they are in the light are those that are claiming to be his followers. But those that say they're in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Still, the word here points not to a sense of there was this ongoing salvation while they continue to live in darkness. It's that they've been in darkness all along. They were never in the light. The light hadn't penetrated them. Because they can't be in the light and hate their brother. John basically say, says here, if you claim to be saved, but you hate your brother, then you are gravely mistaken. You are gravely fooled. You are conned here. You are not saved, nor are you in the light. You have conned yourself and are attempting to deceive others, possibly with some success. But in the end, you will face the reality that you will stand before the Almighty God, you will stand before the risen Christ, and you will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. When the rubber meets the road, you are not in the light. You are in darkness. Friends, there's great clarity there. John puts it plainly for us. To hate your brother is to be in darkness and to not be in the light. He goes on here in verse 10 to contrast those that are in the darkness with those that are in the light. Let's look at our next point here in verse 10. The consistent or the one who is consistent Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. If you'll notice something with me. Verse 9, 
Notice what it says. It says, whoever says. It's a verbal affirmation. He says, I am in the light. But notice here in the verse 10, the activeness, right? He says, whoever loves. He's not pointing to a verbal affirmation. He's pointing to an active affirmation. Gives us something helpful to consider. The previous statement is all about what somebody says about themselves. Here in the second statement, it's all about what someone actually does. This is not to point to some works-based salvation, but the reality that our works are a sign of our own salvation. It's the sign that we are saved because it comes naturally that we then outwork that. This, it hits to be a reality, a a simple words-based, right? There's actions that have to follow. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we see the contrasting language. Those that are in this darkness are all about words, but not about action. And here he says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. The actions of true, supernatural, genuine love points to the saving work that has been done in the person. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. Stumbling throughout the New Testament refers to a sin or sinning. Jude chapter 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, sinning, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. If you love God, if you obey God's word and show selfless love towards others, then you are truly transformed. You will not bring about cause for others to stumble and fall. You will show proof of your salvation and that you will be living examples of the love found in Christ for you, that you have for one another. For many of you, you may or may not remember when you were saved. The humbling feeling of that, the, the humbling reality of where you were and the fact that Christ died for you. And that naturally then outworks in a, a desire to love one another, does it? You frequently on our Wednesday night prayer meetings, we hear the pleas and the prayers of parents for their children because they see the work that God has done in their lives and they desire that for their children all the more. Your life will not be marked by perfection, but boy, will it be marked by a steadfast desire to love God and to love one another. It'll be an action-packed love. It'll be an active love. It's not just verbal, but an active one. We'll talk more about that towards the end, but John makes it clear here again that the believer is marked by love, a love that is active and that lives out the love given by the Savior. Let's turn our attention here to the final verse as we look at the comparison Verse 11, he says, But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John here reemphasizes the point. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. The point is plain and clear. Hating your brother means being and living in darkness. And what's the natural implication? It's, it almost seems too obvious, right? It says, if you're in darkness, you don't know where you're going. This is why so many people are afraid of the dark, right? It's because you can't see 
You can't touch. You don't know what's there. You feel things that aren't real. But it goes beyond that. This darkness, this hatred for one another. See, it's, it said, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. When we hate one another, when we don't love one another, hatred and anger distorts our view. Hatred causes our views to change. Think about that. How often do we assume the worst when we hate someone? Even someone we don't know, which is insane, right? We have no clue about them. And yet we can have such anger towards someone and it can totally distort our views. You're driving down the road. Someone cuts you off. You're angry, right? And right away you think, man, that guy... How dare he? How awful is that person? Not asking the question, maybe he didn't see me. Not asking the question, maybe he didn't even realize I was there. Man, maybe he's in a hurry because his kid's sick in the back and he's just trying to get somewhere. Lord knows that my wife and I drive frequently with kids crying in the car. And boy, can that be distracting. Whether you want it to be or not, kids crying in the car can be distracting. However, when you love someone, rather than hate them or have anger towards them, you see clearly. There's a difference between walking in light and walking in darkness. When you love someone, you're able to see the other person's point of view. When you love someone, it helps you to decipher honest mistakes from downright lack of care. You can make the decision, right? You can say, that person literally has no care or man, I bet you they just didn't get it. It helps us to be balanced in our views and our and our judgments and our actions and our response. How hatred, how darkness taints our view. We can't decipher what's in the dark room, but boy, you turn on the light and everything is clear again. Love helps us to see clearly. And therefore, let us stand before God with open hearts and ask that he reveal who we are. Obedience to this command to love one another with a sacrificial love is a test for genuineness as believers. It's what marks us as separate or distinct from the world and those that live in darkness. It's a good test for us to ask the question, where do we stand where do we stand? Are we standing in a dark room, grasping for anything? Or are we standing in light where we can see clearly? So as we close for today, I thought it would be fitting that we discuss what it looks like to love one another. Let's put some practical steps to that. Let's talk about what it means to love one another well. It's all well and good to say that we love one another, but... As John points us to, this is an active thing. This is not just verbal affirmation. This is an active reality. It's not just something we say, but something we do. We see this on display again in our Savior Jesus Christ. He gave freely of himself, even to the point of death on a cross, as the propitiatory work for our sins. So we must ask ourselves, I love the brothers how do I show it? Well, first and foremost, the basis for all of this is faith. Christian love comes through faith. 
We are saved by grace through faith, not by our own works. The love described in the word of God is impossible outside of Christ and is only feasible when we are given the spirit and the fruits that come with the indwelling of the spirit. Friends, for you to continue on believing that you are loving as Christ has called you to love, if you're unsaved, is, it's not feasible. It's not possible. Your love will be surface level. Maybe go slightly d- deeper, but it'll never be the love that Christ has called you to have. So by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we find ourselves humbled under the reality that in our wicked, sin-filled state, we are saved by Him and we desire then to share that love with one another. This is the basis for our faith. This is the basis for our love. This is what causes the supernatural outpouring of our love for one another. Our love comes from the humbled state as we care for one another. Justin and I were talking just earlier this week. We can't love one another well if we are caught up in our own pride, if we're caught up in our own selfishness, if we're caught up in our own desires for glory, if we're caught up in our own pleasures. All of those things are true. We need love to overcome all of those things. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And so, after all of my talking here, what about the practical ways, right? What are the practical ways? We realize and we accept and we acknowledge that to have any of this is only by being saved. It's by repenting and believing on Christ, hearing the call of the gospel upon your lives, once for salvation and ongoing in your active living out of the Christian life. So what are the practical ways that we can love one another? I tried to put biblical verses to these so that it would have some basis. I don't want to just say things that are untrue or not from the word. But number one, love one another by looking outwardly. Love one another by looking outwardly. Philippians chapter 2 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your interests or to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love one another by looking outwardly. We get caught up in ourselves far too easily. I know it because I do it all the time. Even at home, right? You can get caught up in your own desires, your own thoughts, your own wills and wishes. We see it happen all the time when somebody gets hangry, right? Is they're caught up in their own desire, their own needs, their own wants. And they fail to see what's out there. They fail to look up. As struggles surround us, as trials overtake us, we find ourselves looking inwardly instead of externally. And so let us stop looking at ourselves. Look at one another. See one another and see each other's needs. Ask the question, how can I meet them where they are, meet their needs, love them well? Love one another by looking outwardly. Number two, love one another by speaking in love. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, exhort one another every day. Encourage one another. Build up one another. Express your gratitude and love towards one another. Not superficially, this isn't just a a superficial love, but truly addressing the real gifts, real giftings that God has placed in the life of a fellow believer. 
This is affirming them. This is not as a sense of building them up in a, a puffed up or a haughty way, but in the sense of wanting them to know that you love them and you see them and you see the way the Lord is working in them. Encouraging them. And sometimes that means also challenging them for the sake of, of wanting them to grow. Love one another by speaking in love. Number three, love one another by listening. Love one another by listening. James chapter 1 and verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Friends, let us be slow to speak and quick to hear. Ask questions of one another. Seek not to speak solely about yourself, but seek to hear others. Seek to know their lives, their praises, their supplications, their, their challenges, their thanksgivings. Walk alongside one another and know them. And that can't happen if we're talking all the time. As I've taken up an hour of your time this morning. But thankfully, we're listening to God's word. So it's really God speaking, huh? Number four, love one another by sharing your heart. Galatians chapter six and verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Walk alongside one another. Be willing to bear the burdens of one another. Hurt with them, rejoice with them. Allow your heart to be open, to be vulnerable with them. Friends, we get in a world of such individualism. It's a culture, right? We, we live in a different culture, especially here in the United States, especially in the Western world. We're, we're an individualistic society. It's all about me. I'm, I'm alone. I have to battle this on my own. It's very different from other places that are more communal. And so we, as Christians here in the West, here in the United States, have to do a little bit more work sometimes to share our hearts, to be willing to be vulnerable with one another, to be willing to bear one another's burdens, to walk alongside one another, to open up and to be truly honest with one another about where we are, about our struggles, about our, our rejoicings. It can be a scary thing. It can be a scary thing. We've all been in the position where we've shared with one another and the person didn't respond quite like we hoped they would. But let us not stop doing that. Let us be willing to share our hearts and open our hearts to be shared with. May we have empathy for one another. May we love one another and desire to show our love to them in the midst of whatever they may be going through, good or bad. So number four was love one another by sharing your heart. And number five, the... Final one here, love one another by giving freely. Oh, I apologize. There's number six too. <laughs> number five, love one another by giving freely. First Peter chapter four, verses seven through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Give of your time, 
your talents and your treasures for one another. Love one another by giving freely. How often have you just been willing to open up and give of what you have? Our world has created such a desire for grasping as tightly as you can upon wealth, grasping as tightly as you can upon material goods, grasping as tightly as you can upon all of your giftings. We have such beautiful gifts that the Lord has given us, and it's like if we can't monetize them, we're not going to share them. If we can't get something for it, we won't give of it. Our time is limited, I agree. But the Lord is only the one that is blessing that time. The Lord is the one that gives that time. The Lord is the one that gives you talents or giftings. The Lord is the one that gives you treasures. And not for your own glory, but for his and for the caring and sharing with one another. Friends, love one another by giving freely. And number six, the final one here. Love one another by showing grace. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Step out into that vulnerable place of true, loving relationships. Being open with one another. Forgiving one another when hurt and being willing to set aside those hurts. This is one of the most difficult ones, but one we ought to, what we ought to do. Friends, I find it hard myself at times to deal with forgiveness. It's a silly thing, isn't it, for us that we are forgiven by Christ for far more, far more grievous things. Far more grievous things. And yet, we get hurt and we're so quick to hold on. May we all be exhorted to love one another by showing grace. While this is not an all-inclusive list, I pray it will give you some practical ways wherein you can love one another as you seek to honor God and live out practically the work of salvation God has done for you in Christ. I'm going to just read back through those for your own sake. Love one another by looking outwardly. Love one another by speaking in love. Love one another by listening. Love one another by sharing your heart. Love one another by giving freely. And love one another by showing grace. I'd like to close with this quote from a mid-1600s theologian and minister, Henry Schugel. He said this, or wrote this, we don't have a recording of it, but he said this, Perfect love is a kind of self-dereliction, a wandering out of ourselves. It is a kind of voluntary death, wherein the lover dies to himself, and all his own interest, not thinking of them nor caring for them anymore, and minding nothing but how he may please and gratify the party whom he loves. Perfect love is a type of self-dereliction, a wandering outside of ourselves, minding nothing of ourselves but to love the party that we love, to gratify them, to please them. Let us close in prayer.